0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Team Success Podcast. And today is a very special episode because I have a really good friend and client and innovator with regard to entrepreneurial teamwork, and that is Christian Cattuccini, who is CEO of HeroX., You may remember that in November of 2015, we did another interview, and I'm really excited that we're doing a follow-up, because you've learned a lot, Christian, Uh that you want to share, and I can't wait to hear about your success, what you've tried. Today, we're going to talk about management, and we're going to talk about the fact that you eliminated managers. I can't wait to learn more about that. Uh Why you don't do performance reviews, how to work with millennials. You have what we would call... A self-managing company. You're also what's known as an exponential organization, which has a few unique features to it. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to explore all those topics in our own inimitable way and have some fun. So welcome, Christian. Delighted to have you back. Thank you. You're welcome. And if you could just introduce yourself and HeroX, what you guys do, which is incredibly powerful and definitely a part of our new exponential world. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get into some of the stuff about how you run the company.
1: Great. Thanks a lot, Shannon. And thanks for having me. So my name is Christian, as, as you mentioned. I'm a longtime entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur since I was 20 years old. I've done four companies. I'm in love with the entrepreneurial experience and startups in particular and disruptive technology startups. And I really see the application of methodologies and techniques and professional approaches as a key element to success. HeroX is my most recent startup. And it's by far the most audacious one. And what we're doing at HeroX is we're creating a platform that is really enabling any organization to leverage the power of the crowd and do crowdsourcing. We have this conviction kind of vision that in the future, every organization, every brand, whether it's a nonprofit, a for-profit, a small company, a big company, an educational institution, they're all going to exist in an ecosystem, a social network, if you will. And that ecosystem is totally different than the old model of companies where you kind of had this brick wall and inside you had your employees and your staff. And that's where all your confidential work was done. And that's where you did all your R&D and innovation behind this brick wall. And you protected it and you curated it. That's the old model. And the new model is totally different. It's a model where you're in an overall community. And you're interacting at multiple levels and leveraging the social network around what you're doing and leveraging that crowd. And, and we call that phenomenon crowd engagement. Mm-hmm. Our platform is really a platform to allow brands to create a crowd, nurture a crowd, leverage the crowd, and create a multiplier effect around their brand, their mission, the cool work they're doing to attract amazing people. And unique ability, as I know you know a bit about unique ability, and create a unique ability crowd around your organization.
0: That's fascinating because it really requires a very different mindset than what people, A, have been educated in, B, have their own experience with. There's a whole different way of thinking about business and about who's inside your company, who's outside your company, where you get ideas, how that flow happens in between. So you're talking about an exponential shift in thinking as well as behavior with this type of organization. And I haven't heard the term crowd engagement before. I really like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, engagements have been a big thing within organizations, but it's also a thing outside of organizations. And brands have already seen this. You know, they've got people who love their brand, but the whole idea that you can leverage them and give them an opportunity to participate, which to them is so exciting that they can actually be engaged and involved with the brands, the companies, the products, the services that they care about. And that's a big part of the future of work.
0: I love it. So just so that people's recognition value is there, if you can talk a little bit about how old X is and how your growth trajectory has happened, and maybe even some crowd campaigns that people may be familiar with in terms of products.
1: So HeroX is a spin-off of the XPRIZE Foundation. And my co-founder, Peter Diamandis, which many people have probably heard of, founded the XPRIZE organization. He's authored two bestsellers, Abundance and Bold, which are great books talking about the power of technology to create a world of abundance. You know, what I really love about Peter is he doesn't just talk the talk, but he's in action starting companies and creating organizations to make what he's talking about happen. Mm -hmm. Many people might know about the Abundance 360 conference that he runs annually, which is really an amazing experience and really a game changer for those that attend. So I met Peter about four years ago after I sold my last company to Dell when they were going private. I went on a sabbatical and Peter and I started co-conspiring on a bunch of stuff. And I made the mistake of telling him I was doing a new startup in the realm of crowdsourcing. And he <laughs> leans over and he goes, you know, I've got this project that I've been dying to get off the ground at XPRIZE, maybe there's a tie-in. So long story short, the idea that we could take what XPRIZE has done and digitize and democratize it was just a really great tie-in to what I already saw in the market as an opportunity. And so we joined forces to create a spinoff of XPRIZE called Hero X. So we've been doing this for about three and a half years. and We've had a great success. We've run a number of great crowdsourcing projects and challenges. We've designed over 100 and launched. A lot of them have been successful and a lot of them are still on the go. And we're really scaling that model up. You know, the whole idea starts without getting into too much of the history because uh, crowdsourcing has a, a long history. It actually spans back to the 1700s. Wow. And I will cool white paper on that as well. But basically, the whole idea here is you, rather than trying to figure out the problem yourself, you share the problem and the guidelines that a solution and innovation would meet. And then you incentivize Mm -hmm. the crowd Mm -hmm. openly to solve that problem. Peter did that famously with the Ansari X Prize, which is the $10 million prize for the first reusable spacecraft and he did it at a time when NASA bragged about how it cost billions of dollars to get anything done. So $10 million was like nothing. And when he announced it, people just looked at it and said, there's just no way anybody's going to be able to create a spacecraft for $10 million. And in fact, it happened. Right. And it's really opened up the entire space industry for entrepreneurs. And it's been an amazing transformation. Mm-hmm. So we're a platform that lets you tap into that capability.
0: Very powerful. And are there any... Crowdsourcing projects. What are some of the ones that you found most interesting or most stimulating or exciting that you've worked on?
1: Well, geez, there's a lot, and they span a broad range, as is at nonprofit and for profit and government and just regular business. But I'll give one really great one, which is actually a gold company, Integra Gold. I met with them. And they were like, we really like to do some crowdsourcing. We really want to shake up our industry and really be innovative. And you know, they obviously had connected with Peter and had sipped the exponential Kool Aid, if you will. <laughs> so the question was, well, how can a gold mine company leverage exponential technology? So it turned out that they had bought the rights of a mining property from a larger bankrupt company, and they had done a bunch of survey to get all this geological data. And they hadn't uh, analyzed it very well. So they digitized all of it. It was six terabytes of data, which is a tremendous wow. amount of data, by the way. You know, I think you'd need like 12 laptops to store it all. That's a lot. They put it online and they put up a prize. And they asked people, if you can help analyze this data and discover where the likely gold reserves are in this property to this level of quantitative and objective measurements, then you'd win the prize. If you think about it, that's a tall ask. I mean, it's a lot of very technically specific, you know, have to know geology, you have to be able to manage six terabytes of data, which is a problem upon itself. And then you have to apply some real innovation like deep learning or AI or supercomputing or data science. And we had 1300, over 1300 actual innovators participate in that challenge. And then the finalists round went down to six, and they did an event at one of the big mining conferences, and it was a huge success. The top five solutions all were awarded prizes, and the winning team delivered an amazing solution, and they're continuing to collaborate with them. That's just a great example. It didn't require a lot of work for them. They didn't have to prepay. They only paid for success, and they just leveraged the 3 billion humans that are connected to the internet. They leveraged them. And then on the other level, because what I actually get more excited about the smaller crowdsourcing projects, because anybody can crowdsource and the million dollar ones sometimes people go, okay, well, I don't have a million dollars. So how am I going to do this? But one of our clients we've been working with that's been really exciting is NASA. They've been early adopters of crowdsourcing. Hmm. And without getting into too much of the technical detail, they had a problem they didn't know how to solve around the rise of drones and how to manage airspace. And they were tasked to sort this out. So they wanted to come up with techniques, strategies, designs, and blueprints for how are we going to solve this in the future when we have a thousand drones per square mile flying around? How are we going to solve that? What's the strategy for managing that? So they did a crowdsourcing engagement. They were offering a $5,000 prize for really great solutions. They were hoping to get three um, they actually ended up getting five that they awarded $5,000 to five people. That's amazing. The quality that they got was really amazing for that level. And then quickly, you know, we do crowdsourcing to help organizations recruit interns. We do crowdsourcing for people to source special team members to do hiring, design work, community engagement and mobilization, social change, and just plain old work that needs to get done where the organization doesn't have the capability internally, and therefore needs to go outside anyways. And so crowdsourcing is just a great way to do it.
0: We could talk all day about that (laughs) because it'd be somewhat interesting to see all the different examples of it. So crowdsourcing is really tapping into this incredible amount of intelligence that's out there. And I just think about NASA paying $25,000, whereas if they would have spent that internally and been nowhere, you know, if they tried to do that. So that's a great example. And it also gives me some confidence that, there is a strategy for how do you deal with a thousand drones per square mile, so that's that's actually quite encouraging to me. I quite appreciate that uh-huh. so you've been creating an organization around making this happen, and one of the things that's really kind of impressive to me is just there's a lot of input that your team has to deal with. There's a lot of direction you have to give to your customers, your clients in terms of how they organize a campaign, how they organize what the prize is and what the constraints have to be and there's a lot of a lot of exchange that has to happen and you have created a team of millennials I think primarily that do this very very successfully you've grown exponentially and it's not a large team so can you talk about some of the core things I know you want to talk about values mm-hmm. that really helps drive this without you yourself don't have thousands and thousands of bodies doing this work you've got a few mm-hmm. so talk about your model a little bit
1: yeah quickly, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been a startup entrepreneur for over 20 years. And I've learned that success is 5% ideas and strategy and 95% execution. And you know, execution is hard. And I'm sure all the business owners and entrepreneurs that are out there listening can attest to that execution can be tough. Mm -hmm. When you're creating a new company, it's really great opportunity for me anyways to think through everything i know and i've learned about high performance teams and how to really engage and enable a team and what's really great about HeroX is the ability to start from the ground up with everything i learned before mm-hmm. and apply those elements that we're going to talk about in this podcast i'm a pragmatist i'm an optimistic pragmatist by nature and i don't like trends and dogma chasing after the, the latest management craze or anything like that i need to see the data i need to see the impact and the results So what's really great about what we've done at HeroX is it's really been motivated by maximizing execution, creating an amazing culture that attracts the best people, that empowers them the most. And that journey has led to a really neat place where we are. And part of that is there's a couple of elements. First off, just understanding why we manage companies the way we manage companies and what is great about it and what's not so great about it. As well, how you leverage technology Mm -hmm. to really make a difference with how you run a company. And in HeroX's case, we're a virtual company. So we don't have any offices. Mm -hmm. We're globally distributed. So that adds even more pressure to our system because we can't leverage having everybody in the office and Mm -hmm. and that kind of traditional method. And at the same time, I'm all in on creating a values-driven organization. You know, When you have a set of powerful core values, it's the highest form of delegation because if you have team members that you're aligned on the values of the company and you know that they'll make decisions consistent with those values, you can give them autonomy and you can give them trust because you know they'll be fundamentally making the right decisions. Mm -hmm. So companies always start with values and it's been a huge success for us with what we've done there and we've built a whole management system on top of that you know, which we're going to talk about today. And it's just building on the podcast we did about a year ago, where we drilled down and we spent the whole time on our values. Right. So I'm excited to talk about what we've built on top of our company core values.
0: So let's dive right into that. And I would strongly encourage everyone listening to go back to that podcast, because You've got this great matrix and you explain what each of them mean. You know, we did a deep dive into that, which was really insightful. And I love how conscious you are about your values. And just on that point, I was at this great conference I was speaking at. The lineup of speakers was amazing, including someone from XPRIZE and Singularity University, which was great to hear all about the exponentials again. But one of the other speakers was talking about exactly what you said. Values is one of the best delegations because you can be confident about how people will make decisions when you're not there. Almost word for word, what you've just said. So I could not agree more. But it isn't enough to just come up with the values and share them and and walk away. Exactly. That's not going to
2: happen. Exactly.
0: So, one of the questions I have well, if you're all globally distributed, how do you talk to each other? (laughs) So, I'm dying to know that. And then also, I just want to ask you a question. You said you eliminated managers. Uh How in Lord's name did you do that? That's unheard of.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll give you a little bit about the journey that I went down for that. So, first off, I, like many entrepreneurs, I'm just fundamentally a bit of a nonconformist and a rebel. So in high school, I didn't really like rules and the structure. And then when I entered the work world, I remember you get a job and you have this boss who tells you what to do. And I didn't like that at all. Shocking. Often you'd have this experience where you had a conviction about the right way to do something, but your manager would tell you the way that they wanted it done. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the best way, but they thought it was the best way, but you didn't think it was the best way. And it just seemed like a really flawed model because isn't the person closest to the work probably the person who has the best understanding of how to proceed forward. So then as I developed as an entrepreneur, you know, many entrepreneurs talk about how they're an entrepreneur because they don't like being managed. So there's this kind of view that entrepreneurs are people that don't like to be managed and then employees are all okay with that. And I bought into that for a while, but then I started asking mm. and I started finding out that no, in fact, a lot of people I asked, they don't like to be managed. And then I kept on asking, and I basically found out that, you know, I don't think anybody really likes to be managed. And I'll make the distinction between management and leadership, because that's a good good. distinction. Management is the application of authority to direct and constrain the behavior of another person.
0: Oh, can you repeat that? So the application of authority. Of authority
1: to direct and constrain the behavior of another person.
0: Great definition.
1: Right? Yeah. And leadership, okay, is... Driving towards a future collaboratively, that wouldn't have happened without your leadership.
0: Love it. Love it.
1: So leadership's about creating value and really making a difference. And I love leadership. I'm all in on leadership. Management is the use of the authority that you've been given in your org chart to, in my opinion, avoid the need for leadership and just tell people what to do. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. And there's this great concept called power versus force. And without going into too much of the theory.
0: Dr. David Hawkins. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I was just looking for his book on my shelf. Yeah. So it's a great book. It's hard to read. It's a little bit opaque. But what I just described is force in management is the application of force. And leadership is the application of power. And the two negate each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can feel it. You don't even have to read the book. You can just feel it when you're interacting with somebody. You can feel the force and you can feel that it destroys leadership.
0: I just want to make sure everyone captures that because I can read about three pages of that book and then I have to stop and digest it. It is that Mm -hmm. profound, actually. Dr. David Hawkins not so long ago passed away, but one of the leading spiritually connected people on the planet (laughs) all of his work is amazing and his audios are pretty fascinating if you have a chance to listen to that but highly recommend power versus force by dr david hawkins if you want to delve more deeply but applying that to management and leadership is a great example Mm -hmm. because you know a power is attractive Mm -hmm. but force we want to avoid that yeah i don't want to be forced to do anything
1: yeah for me it's just a pragmatic revelation, okay, that force is just not an effective approach for me to get what I want, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't even have to be values driven to make that decision. I can just be pragmatic. But it turns out that it aligns with my values and it's pragmatic at the same time. So the question is, okay, well, now how do I manage a company, right? And if you really sit down and think about it, management's needed. And the word manage isn't needed. So the way we distinguish it is we manage systems and not people. Love that. Because systems don't mind the application of force, and (laughs) they don't mind being told what to do. And by the way, their systems are just intrinsically incapable of leadership anyways, right? So, But once you have the distinction of we're managing systems, but we're not managing each other, it fundamentally changes the nature of how we collaborate without really losing any of the important elements that you need to manage, right? Does that make sense?
0: It totally does. And when I think about a system, a system actually, a really well designed system,
1: Mm -hmm. is designed
0: to maximize people's creativity and impact and value creation. Mm -hmm. So you've just made an absolutely brilliant distinction. Because if people aren't showing up that way, it means you have to change the system, not the person. Yeah. You've just flipped, I don't know how many decades of years of management throughout its head. So I love that. Thank
1: you. And when I'm talking to a potential new hire or somebody who's just curious about this, and I'm trying to explain it to them, the analogy I always use, which is approachable to most people is, so do you remember when you were in university? Yeah. And then I'll ask them, did you have a manager there? And they'll be like, "Uh, no. So you were self-managed? Yeah. Great. But were you accountable? Yeah. And did you have a a structure that created that accountability and transparency and allowed your performance to be maximized? And yeah, you know, I'm not saying every university is a perfect environment or that the university system is perfect, but it's just a great example of self-managing that a lot of people have experienced. Mm -hmm. The approach for universities evolved over 2000 years. So it's interesting to see how that's landed there. Whereas the modern corporate world is really designed around a book called Scientific Management, which was published in 1911 Mm -hmm. by Francis Taylor. Mm -hmm. I've read the book, and it's actually a really good book, and it's got really great insights if you look at when he talks about management as managing systems and not people. He does. But then when you kind of look through the history, you see that after World War II, kind of modern corporate de facto approaches, the things we take for granted about companies like org charts. Mm was inculcated, that's a fancy word, inculcated into our culture after World War II when all the veterans kind of re-entered the workforce and a lot of military concepts were embedded. And we ended up with this org chart and this manager thing and all of that. It's a relatively new idea. It worked really well with some misgivings and blah, blah, blah. But here's the kicker. Now we have the internet. Mm. The internet didn't exist back then. So any best practice is always a reaction to the limitations of the environment. And once the limitations of the environment change, new, better ways are available, right? So the internet's come along and now we can communicate totally differently. We can collaborate at levels we never could before. And the old model of an org chart where this guy tells his four reports what to do and then it trickles all the way down and all that stuff, it's really an obsolete model. Mm -hmm. And it's a new model as well. And it's a model that hasn't adapted as quickly to the change that I just talked about around technology. So that's where you can really just get clear that management's just in the way we currently talk about and experience management in a business environment is a new thing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And we take it for granted like, well, of course we do it that way. But no, we don't have to do it that way. So, I'm going to start with that and that analogy of the college experience. You're self-managing and you're responsible for your own productivity and performance and you can make your own decisions. You know, do you attend the lecture
2: mm-hmm.
1: or not? Or are you going to put five hours into that midterms? Are you going to put in 50 hours? So, you're free and you're also accountable. And if you do a bad job, you're going to do a bad job mm-hmm. and it's going to be transparently reported on, right? So, we've really, you know, implemented a management system at Hero X that models that approach using exponential technology and and a lot of the technologies that we have built on our core values, and then giving the team the tools and the structure that's needed to maximize their performance and make it super simple for them to do what they need to do.
0: So what are some of those tools to help them? Because I think that if I'm going to kind of get a picture of what this looks like, so I've got a distributed workforce all over the world, different time zones, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know some of the technologies you use, how you set targets because students can flunk out and that's kind of on them and their parents or whoever paid the tuition. Yeah, Most people are a little bit like, I don't want to wait that long to know whether or not someone's only going to put in five hours in the course or 50. So most people get a little fearful and then they start to manage people as opposed to the system. So how often is the feedback? What kind of technology do you use? How do you maximize people's contribution?
1: Yeah. Let me add some further intrigue into that in that we've eliminated titles within the company.
0: Love that. I have this thing about titles, Christian. Mm -hmm. I think they're roles. I think they're boxes. And the only titles I ever like are ones that are unique ability based Mm -hmm. or that describe the value creation that someone is doing. Mm -hmm. Like I much prefer director of first impressions than receptionist (laughs) because it actually describes what the heck they're responsible for. Yeah. Yeah. So I love not having titles. That works for me. Yeah.
1: And obviously, pragmatically, for many roles, you need a front stage title. Yes. You need a way to introduce yourself and for people to understand what you do. And mm-hmm. that's totally appropriate. We actually let people pick their own titles for the front stage, right? Yes. And there's no approval process required because that would be managing, I, right? Yes, it would be. <laughs> but the titles don't mean anything internally. And that just as a quick side note, one of the struggles we have with this is the de-indoctrinization yeah. of new hires, because they'll obviously just human nature, they'll flip back to their winning strategies from their work history. And often that gets into thinking their title entitles them to certain
0: mm. things. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And th- so there's a lot of unlearning you're saying yeah. that they have to do. And they have to be willing to give up. You're asking them to give up things that they used to hang on to that would, they're somewhat ego based, mm-hmm. you know, their title and their previously constructed model of status. Mm-hmm. For something new and different and yeah. albeit better, but they don't know that yet.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. That's challenging. So that's a process that we're iterating on and figuring out the onboarding process and getting better at it every day. But we started with a org chart with lines of reporting that we said well, we don't really want to use those, you know, unless we need to. But it always kind of was there. And then just very recently, we just totally eliminated the lines of reporting and moved into a model. And I'll just share, just to answer your earlier question, and there's a whole realm here. So I'm just Mm going to pick some elements that I think would be of highest value to the listeners. So we don't use job descriptions because job descriptions are just a title in prose, right? (laughs) We use scorecards. Oh, yeah.
0: gee, I love scorecards.
1: Yeah, so everybody in the company has a scorecard. Dan Sullivan is doing this amazing work on mindset scorecards. That's a realm that we are working on. I've got a lot to say about that, but I'm not going to talk about that today because it's not integrated into the things I'm talking about right now. The team scorecard, team member scorecards are more like baseball cards Mm. in that they're more quantitative. Got it. And they're more about them being clear and communicating clearly with other team members Mm -hmm. the roles and accountabilities that they're taking on at the company. Okay. Okay. Because obviously if you don't have titles, you don't have job descriptions. Okay. Well, that sounds like chaos. So chaos is not the best thing. So what we found was that having clear scorecards was really clear. So if to use a baseball analogy, you know, if you're a first baseman, right, you can put that on your card. You know, that's the role I'm going to play when we're in defense. I'm going to be first baseman. And then here's how I measure first baseman success. And the measurement of that is a collective agreement, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah, these are the results we really appreciate in our first baseman on hero X because we've learned. Mm-hmm. the value of those things. Now, the really cool thing about it is that if people's scorecards are, are self-selected.
0: So they create their own?
1: They create their own scorecards. And the way that we do that, and this is a, still a little bit messy. I mean, we're a startup and we're, we're evolving. But the way we do that is when we do our planning, we figure out kind of what are all the roles that we need filled, right? And it can be as simple as, you know, understanding like how many customers we expect to have in the next 90 days. And so one of our processes onboarding customers so we have to look at that and we have to go, okay, well, if we're going to onboard that many customers, how much onboarding role do we need mm-hmm. added to the company? So we put kind of an overall list of, well, here's all the roles that need to get filled and what capacity it needs to be there and the analogy I use is maybe not the best one, but I loved Lego when I was a kid. So was, we figure out all the Lego blocks. All the roles are like the Lego building blocks, kind of put them all in the middle of the table. Mm -hmm. And then everybody kind of stands around and then they start picking the pieces and they can build their own job by building the Lego pieces and assembling it. Mm -hmm. And we just do that in an iterative fashion. And then people build their own scorecards. And the rule is, Cause we're a, you know, we're a unique ability company and we're a a purpose and passion driven company. And we're really excited about helping people work and be in their passion and their unique ability and their purpose. So the rule is we want you to order your scorecard by your passion level. Mm. And I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about that. They go, come on, Christian. That can't possibly work because people will pick all the fun stuff and, and all the crap stuff won't get picked, right? Well, first off, one person's garbage is another person's treasure. So you'd be surprised, right? You know, if you have a bookkeeper who loves bookkeeping, I would rather drive nails through my feet and do bookkeeping. I know.
0: <laughs> Me too. I'm with you there.
1: But there are people out there who love bookkeeping, mm-hmm. whose unique ability is to do bookkeeping the same way every week over and over again so that's the power. And so first off, that's the power and the essential nature of having a lot of diversity in your company and maximizing diversity. And the other thing is that people genuinely, especially if you've got an engaged team that care about the mission and care about what the company's doing, people take a tremendous amount of accountability. Mm -hmm. So they're deeply caring about who should have what on their scorecards. So without lines of reporting, there's already a collaborative effort to work together to figure out who should be doing what when we started this, I thought there'd have to be some rules, right? We'd have to put some rules and around that would manage the process more and eliminate side effects. But so far, it hasn't really occurred. So far, people have done a really great job. And I'll just share, we, I had one person, because we do a lot of experiments. So before we roll things out, we do experiments. We use the scientific method experiment and we test things out and look at how it went. And then we go from there. So when we did this new self-managing, self-building scorecard, I took a couple of people and I went through it with them. One person had a job very much on the backstage, very administrative and stuff like that. When she picked her scorecard, it was all front stage in a totally different role. So we just went with it. And her level of engagement and excitement and passion just blossomed. And the accountability she felt about her job went up. Why? Because she's the one that picked it. Right. It's so simple, right? Like if you let them pick it, And of course, they're accountable for it.
0: So did she change her activities a whole bunch? Like, did she just change her job? Yeah, completely. I love it.
1: Without permission. Interestingly enough, she was a little nervous about like, really? So she needed encouragement to do it, but she did it. And she's now one of the top performers in that new role. And we had similar success with the other one. So that really gave me the confidence to roll this out across the whole company.
0: Now, you talked about collaboratively. So do people sit down and kind of share their scorecards? Hey, This is a result that has to be produced, so like onboarding a client, and one person may have one take on it, but it's like, yeah, well, what about this step, though? Who's going to do that part? Do people collaborate on what those results are?
1: Yeah, and obviously, unlike college, where you're really autonomous in terms of your results, and there's not a lot of impact across individuals in a company that's very different. In a company, there's very few results that are produced that aren't a team effort. Yes. So that's a whole element. So you need a structure structure is critical. So the way we organize ourselves is into teams. And they're not teams like teams of people. They're teams like sports teams, like process centers. I don't even like the word teams. I'm trying to find a new better word for it because people, when they hear the team word, they go to people too quickly. Mm -hmm. So for example, all of our marketing efforts is in the traction team. Mm, And then all of our, you know, what you would call sales in a traditional environment We call it the possibilities team. (laughs) The job of the possibilities team is to advocate and build relationships that lead to people being onboarded and using our platform. So that's the possibilities team. And then within that, there's a role called a relationship manager, and they have a set of metrics that they're responsible for. And they work within a set of processes that we've documented, and they're all defined. And we have systems and software that they use. And there's training. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of structure there. But we organize into teams. When we introduced teams, we created three. Mm -hmm. Each time we grew, we expanded. Now we have seven. We have four front stage teams and three backstage teams.
0: And how many people per team, roughly?
1: Well, again, people's scorecards could have roles in multiple teams.
0: Okay. That's what I wonder, because I know if you put the unique ability slant on this, I'm primarily useful as a front stage person. If I go backstage, usually bad things happen. So I try and but there's eight or nine different things I do front stage. So I could be on multiple teams. And that's what you're saying. If someone has amazing organizational talent, they could contribute that on the traction team, on the possibilities team. Got it. Love it.
1: They're like different sports, right? So there's like the volleyball Mm -hmm. team and the soccer team, right? They're playing different games. There's different rules. There's different processes. And if you see a role you play in the volleyball team and you want to do that role and then, as long as it adds up to 100%, right? So <laughs> you build your scorecard until it's 100% of your time and then you stop. Got it. Right?
0: Got it. Okay.
1: And then whatever doesn't fit, that's where our recruiting efforts go.
0: Got it. Okay, good. Right?
1: So we recruit for the stuff that run out of unique ability, passion or capability for. Okay. And that's where recruiting goes. Does that makes sense?
0: That makes total perfect sense. So- I'm conscious there's just more things I want to talk about, too. Yeah. So tell me, just one or two, and feel free to name names, mm-hmm. what are some of the communication technologies that you use to connect with one another? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're going to need some, obviously, if you're sharing scorecards, you need some visuals and some stuff that everyone has available to them, or is there proprietary yeah. stuff that you guys use? What do you do?
1: Just taking um, a verse from Dan Sullivan's playbook, we have the emphasis on tools, mm-hmm. on using tools to drive and support processes. So we have a scorecard template specifically for the team scorecards. And we have a process matrix, not a great name, but we have a process matrix which is all the company's processes documented out. So we use those tools and then we have a dashboard where metrics are reported. Okay. And again, we're a startup and so a lot of this is rough and still growing and evolving. And and as a startup and as a lean startup, we put as many resources on the front stage as we can and not a lot on the backstage. And as we grow, our backstage will Mm -hmm. get more sophisticated. So we're iterating on that, but the use of tools Mm -hmm. and just avoiding people like creating blank documents and filling them with stuff and sending them around to people is really not a good thing. So anytime we see that happening, we ask the question, well, where's the missing tool that would have that new document that somebody's written or whatever, not be needed anymore. Related to that, we don't use email in the company. We haven't used email since day one before not using email was trendy. Now Slack has come along and made it trendy, which is great. And it emphasizes the fact that it's pragmatism about the universal efficiency of our approach. So we use Slack, don't use email. We also don't use phone calls. We use video conferencing. Mm Zoom is the one we use now. We used to use Google Hangout, but we had too many stability problems. So we now use Zoom and Zoom's been great for us.
0: fabulous, yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's just a lot of little decisions you make. Mm -hmm. It's all in the realm of standardization based upon performance and pragmatism and empowerment and all the values of the company, right? So we are careful to not introduce too much technology for the sake of introducing technology, but to be really pragmatic about it. The other really important thing is transparency, right? So the way... I like to describe it as the tools and the scorecards, they're not owned by anybody. Okay. They're shared. And so all our scorecards are on a Google Drive share. Anybody can go and look. The visual is all your tools and your documents are like in the center of the team. Mm-hmm. And the people are around and they're all collaborating like spokes of a wheel into the collective of the information, documents, and systems. That might sound really simple, but the other approach is more of a linear one where you've got people and documents and then they kind of move from one to the next. Mm -hmm. And there's this chain that occurs and then a sense of like ownership, like this is my document. That is really destructive. Mm. But once you mutualize the tools and there's a sense of shared accountability, then my scorecard is not just about me. It's about my contribution to everybody. And anybody in the company can go to my scorecard and challenge something. They can go and say, hey, Christian, you're spending 20% of your time doing that. Is that really aligned with what our company level goals are in the next 90 days? When those challenges happen, I love that because nobody's smart enough. The CEO in many companies is a person you can't challenge, right? Mm -hmm, True. But even the best CEO is not smart enough to be able to get everything right without that feedback. So then you fall into this emperor has no clothes scenario. (laughs) which is another form of authority and force. So that collaborative and openness and transparency is really important.
0: That is fascinating. Now, I'm sure the fact that you have scorecards is tied into the fact that you also don't do performance reviews. Yeah. Because the scoring is probably how you keep each other accountable. Do people score themselves? Do other people score one another and how often would be my question about that?
1: Well, since we report metrics on the scorecards based upon the roles, right? Mm-hmm. The performance speaks for itself. We are social animals, right? Human beings. It's our biggest differentiation is our ability to collaborate together. We're wired, we're pre wired for collaboration. You don't need mm-hmm. to read a book to collaborate, right? <laughs> yeah. So, if anything, this is about getting stuff out of the way and allowing our natural talents of collaboration to occur. And we also, to our tribe, if you will, we have a sense of accountability. Mm -hmm. One of the worst human phobias or fears, right, is being ostracized or separated from the tribe. If anything, the culture just naturally will create too much of performance review pressure because of that Mm -hmm. level of shared accountability. Mm. So you don't need to do performance reviews for performance to be reviewed. And for people to feel accountable, they're pre-wired mm-hmm. to feel accountable for the role that they take on, especially if they're the one that's, that chose the role. So if right. you give people autonomy and freedom, then the sense of responsibility just comes naturally. When a manager has told you to do something or you didn't get a promotion, and now you're doing a job you don't really want to do, and the manager is telling you to do it in ways you don't want to do it, and then the performance review comes along, it's just called the blame shell game. where the manager and the employee will usually walk away not agreeing on where the blame was allocated. It's just (laughs) not a successful process. So there's actually a third pillar to interaction I didn't mention, which is where this fits in. I talked about leadership, the other one's management. The third one's called coaching. Mm. And coaching is about supporting the performance of another person. And it's distinct from leadership. So coaching is where we work on performance. And so if somebody's having a problem with their numbers, then the first place we go is to coach. And that's about the future performance. It's not about trying to analyze the past. Like performance reviews tend to be, well, you know, you were in this meeting, you did this and this is, you know, and this is my judgment about it all, which is the opposite of coaching if you think about it, right?
0: Yeah. Our definition of coaching is you're asking questions to help clarify people's own wisdom and learning and knowledge and to bring it to the forefront and to help clear away the clutter. That's really what coach does. mm -hmm strategic coach, mm-hmm. so that they can figure out their own answers and then mm-hmm. get to where they want to go. So
1: Exactly. Yes. Because just like in a sports environment, the way one pitcher pitches versus another, it's based upon that person's specific biology and physiology. There's no one size fits all. And it's mm-hmm. about discovering and tuning and optimizing that pitcher's performance. And anybody who's a sports fan just sees the style of a top performer is very unique to that person. And well, it turns out that that's just the way it is everywhere. So coaching is about helping them discover access to performance and not to tell them what to do or whatever. So that just ties into that whole point of a performance review and that ties into the scorecard and the metrics. And so far, you know, that's worked out really well at Herox. There's such a shared accountability that if somebody is not performing, there's an outcry. People are asking questions, right? right? Like what's going on? What's in the way? And. It naturally resolves a lot without needing to put a lot of structure in that place. Now, as we grow, we will get more refined and we'll put structure in how exactly that's done. But like I said, just creating that environment. And let me just add another thing, just from the values that we have to this and that. And this is a really important lesson for anybody because the way we do it at HeroX, it wouldn't be appropriate to cookie cutter apply it to another organization because the whole point here is to match the backstage to the front stage right
2: uh-huh.
1: think yes. about how you create value for your front stage and you think about everything i just said well if you're crowdsourcing isn't crowdsourcing about maximizing opportunity isn't crowdsourcing about people self selecting the work isn't uh-huh. crowdsourcing about self managing isn't crowdsourcing about that autonomy and that freedom on the front stage well of course it is isn't crowdsourcing about not telling people what to do because you have the answer no you're going to share the question and the crowd's going to figure out the answer yeah so a lot of what i've been doing is just looking at how every great organization, you create a culture that bleeds through into your brand promise. And the Mm -hmm. two are very aligned. Southwest Airlines is a great culture company and one of their core values is fun because the difference between two airlines is they have the same planes, right? If you're in one environment where they love fun on the backstage, it bleeds through on the front stage, just naturally with no effort required. And you're going to spend three hours in a tube you might as well be around people that are fun versus another airline, right? Who don't have that core value. And then that's not there. But if you were, a I don't know, a legal firm or a hospital, you know, or like a cancer clinic, probably fun might not be the value over another value that's more important. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Aligning your values to your brand promise is a really important thing for every organization. And it's also true for the management system that they put together it needs to be aligned and our management systems aligned for our front stage and making that authentic and amplified. And every organization has an opportunity to do that in their own way.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really powerful point because if there's a disconnect there, it will not work. It falls apart. Yeah. In terms of one of our last points that I want to bring out, you work with millennials. Yeah. And you have some insight into how that works best. And, And someone made a really great point. They said in 10 years, I think it was 85% of the workforce will be millennials. Yeah, that's so right. So we better figure this puppy out. Well, yeah. Was the point. And one of the things I know about millennials is that everything you're talking about is actually works really well for millennials because their value system is they want to work for something and a company that's doing important work, something that's meaningful that really connects for them. Mm-hmm. Is that part of your experience with millennials?
1: Absolutely. Millennials, I think, are poorly understood. I've done a lot of research. We've done a lot of research on the the millennials. And by the way, millennials don't even like being called millennials. I actually see it as a millennial mindset. Mm. And the mindset can be adopted by anybody of any age, by the way. But the mindset has been driven by the democratizing power of the internet and technologies. And the millennials are the digital natives, right? Everybody else is a digital immigrant. Right? <laughs> digital
0: native and digital immigrant. Yeah, That's
1: brilliant. Yeah. Some digital immigrants adopted. Their new home and some resist it. Okay. (laughs) I love that. But they're not going to win. The resistors aren't going to win because the new home is the new home, right? Right. In fact, if you research it, the new generations always win, by the way, because unfortunately they outlive the older generations. Okay. But I know a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers to stereotype, and I apologize in advance, but when you talk about demographics, by default, you're stereotyping. They'll complain a lot about the aspects that they see. But if you look at the data, Data is really powerful. Now, obviously, the millennials are the most studied generation because we live in a very data-driven mm-hmm. far more data, and it's far easier. But millennials, for their age levels, work harder. There's actually an article, it was, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about a study that basically showed that millennials are workaholics more than earlier generations adjusted for their age levels, right? There's a lot of facts and figures I could share, but the bottom line is, is that the millennials are, by all measures, the most empowered generation. We obviously have the Internet where you can almost get the equivalent education of a college degree for free by using the courseware that's on the Internet. Mm-hmm. You don't have to ask people's permission. And even 50 years ago, that was just impossible. Right. totally
0: impossible. Mm-hmm. So
1: if I want to learn how to code or I want to get into AI, I don't have to go to college to get a college level capability. I can just do it myself. And if I want to collaborate globally, I can collaborate globally, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're so comfortable with these new tools and they know how to apply them. What that means is that they have a level of freedom that they're fully planning on applying. And why wouldn't they, of course, that didn't exist before. So the whole idea that, oh, you know, so bad that nowadays you can't get the job in a company and work for 30 years there and get a pension. Well, you know what? They don't even want that. No, like Even if it was all. offered to them, they would turn it down because that was a constraint. Again, as I said earlier, every kind of best practice is, is a reaction to the constraints of the environment at the time. Well, back then, the environment at the time around jobs and all that meant that that was the best practice. Now we have the internet and you can follow your purpose and passion and you don't have to give up that part of yourself to climb a corporate ladder that only gives you those limited opportunities. You don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can take responsibility for your retirement and you can do other things. So they have that freedom and they're prepared to work hard and they're very capable and competent. So I really like all those things. Those actually connect really well with my values. I think that they're going to be the greatest generation in the history of generations. By the way, they're numerically larger than the baby boomers. People don't realize that.
0: No, I yeah. did not.
1: Well, population grows. So, yeah. in North America and most other countries in the developed world, obviously in the developing world, they're much bigger because those demographics, the pyramid tends to be more for younger. Mm-hmm. Even in the US and Canada, the millennials are numerically larger. They just crossed over being bigger than the boomers about two years ago.
2: Wow.
1: And, you know, they're going to have the biggest impact. In HeroX, by the way, you know, part of my passion for HeroX is, is to create a marketplace. To create liquidity for the opportunity for innovation and for people to follow their passions without having to have something on their resume or get a job, which is just another manager approval process. They don't have to ask permission. They can go do what they want to do. And if they want to build a career around that, they can do that. And HeroX can be that platform that lets them find their unique ability, build some track record there and earn the reputation and the right to more and more amazing work. You know, I've met a lot of the people like the HeroX innovators who have participated in crowdsourcing campaigns and have won, have been successful. Every time I meet one, I ask them, I said, well, how has HeroX impacted your life? And the stories I get are amazing. They're like, I'm doing this now. And two months ago, I didn't think I had any way to move my life in this direction. And Now I'm doing this amazing work with this amazing group, and it's changed my direction massively. And that democratization is really exciting. And even if HeroX wasn't around, the millennials are going to make that happen anyways. I'm just happy to be part of what they're already doing. So I'm a big fan and believer of them. And I think if you work with them, and by the way, the culture I've just described and the systems we've described, they don't want to be managed, right? They want to be purpose and passion driven. There are anyways. So the reason they've moved jobs so many times is because They're not that into your BS org chart, corporate ladder. Like they're just not. (laughs) As soon as we get over it and stop looking for people that are gonna, I mean, I know I'm being a bit disparaging, but a typical corporate ladder, you know, you're talking about people climbing a corporate ladder and saying what needs to be said about the plans and goals of the company so they can get promoted and to get to a VP, and it's all very inauthentic. They never wanted to do it. They don't want to do it. They don't have to do it. So the reason they change jobs is because they're just committed to their own passion and career and following their life purpose. Isn't that a good thing?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great, great point. So just to wrap up, cause you and I could talk for hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that there's so many takeaways from today. One of them is that passion and purpose and values really connect and unite people. I love your distinctions around leadership and management and power versus force. And the fact that what well, you want to be managing are systems mm-hmm. and scorecards of any type, especially results-based scorecards and dashboards are such a powerful way to measure. It's amazing that you can actually do away with performance Uh appraisals and all of those things that most managers hate anyway. Uh That's the least favorite thing they do is like, oh, filling out performance appraisals. Uh We've been looking for a new and better way for a long time, but actually eliminating them sounds pretty good to me. Uh So I'm getting this picture of this very different but very data-driven, systems-driven, unique Uh ability-focused, collaborative community uh-huh. is kind of if i'm going to put some words around to summarize what you've talked about that's really inspiring uh-huh. so most people have a few forays into community type stuff uh-huh. but what are some either key principles or takeaways that you would advise other companies and i know in the workshops you've had lots of conversations with other people saying how do you do that uh-huh. so what are one or two or three things do this don't do that what's some of your coaching for us
1: Peter Diamandis and Salim Ismail at the Exponential Organizations, he wrote a book called Exponential Organizations and, and Singularity. And that whole community has been talking about exponential technology and how the rate of change is accelerating. And I spent a lot of time in those environments and I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and it often lands as a disruptive threat, right? And they're often, <laughs> oh they feel some angst and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, change comes from inspiration or desperation, right? But they often ask the question or they're left with the question what should I be doing as a leader of an organization? My argument would be, look, the disruptive change, obviously, it's a net benefit to the world. But the reality is the idea that you can, even at an individual level, learn what you need to know in college and then apply that over 30, 40 years and retire. Right. That's been gone for a long time. So learning and growing is a best practice mm. and adapting to the changing needs is a best practice and it's a best practice for almost every organization. You know I haven't talked about that too much in this context but one of the key drivers of this whole thing has been creating an organization that is maximally adaptive. Okay? Mm. The way that this organization works is like, yes, I provide leadership and yes, I set goals and yes, I set direction. And that's all my scorecard. And I take that job very seriously. And I'm pretty good at it because it's my unique ability. But at the same time, the company, it's not even self-managed, it's self-led in a certain sense, because we have a big commitment to continual improvement, which I didn't talk about in this podcast today. And that's a whole other realm, but that's a huge element. And so Mm -hmm. that continual improvement happens all the time at HeroX. Therefore, My company is self-adaptive and they don't have to go up to the org chart to get approval to change the way we do things. The processes are naturally adaptive. One of our rules is that we're a very process-driven company because process is how you absorb the collective learnings from the past, right? But our rule is if the customer's needs aren't met through our processes, stop following the process. Right. Okay. But there's an obligation now. So if you have to go off process to do what's right for the customer, please do that. But now you need to take that back to the process owner and you need to provide that data and you need to say, mm-hmm. this is where it didn't work. And then we look at that and we actually, we have a, a board called the hassle board where people post hassles and that's a hassle, right? Each of those hassles is now an opportunity for us to improve the process. And again, because there's no org chart, Okay we're maximizing for empowerment out to the front stage for that process to naturally evolve and adapt. So I've created an an organization to the best of my ability so far that is self-adapting in a Darwinian kind of sense (laughs) to a changing environment. And so I think the idea that the senior people have to get on the disruptive curve, and they're the ones that have to go to Singularity University, and they're the ones that have to talk to the consultants, and they have to figure out that so they can tell their people what to do, you just fundamentally miss the point, right? (laughs) It's flawed. I mean, look at BlackBerry, like RIM, right? They saw the iPhone coming from a mile away. They had years and years to adapt to it. top-down strategies failed over and over again, and now they're basically toast. Blockbuster, even before Netflix was Netflix, It was super simple to look at the streaming bandwidth required for video and see how it was growing and predict when streaming to the house would be a thing. Blockbuster had 10 years notice and they're bankrupt. Kodak, Kodak invented the digital camera. I know. And they're bankrupt. So it's not about the disruptive change externally. They're bankrupt, not because they didn't ride some external trend. They're bankrupt because internally, they didn't have... The structure that allowed adaptation to occur. And that's the biggest impact that organizations need to think about. People go, oh my God, but that sounds so much. I'm like, no, it's not. And here's the analogy I use. I go, look, if disruptive change in your industry is the bear chasing you, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than the competitor beside you who's running <laughs> away from the bear.
0: Yeah. I've heard that story. It's like, how do you run a bear? You run with someone slower than you. <laughs> exactly.
1: And so the good news for most organizations is that your competitors are slow and stuck, like Blockbuster and Kodak. So you don't need to be faster than the bear. You just need to be faster than the Kodak beside you. Mm-hmm. Like You don't have to do you know, nine gajillion changes. Now, you know, HeroX, we're a small company. We want to create a global platform. We want to become as big as LinkedIn or Facebook. We're audacious and we're big. And so we've designed a very aggressive management system that scales. So, as I said, you have to be faster than the Kodak beside you. And so it's not about being as aggressive with your management system like Hero X is. It's about applying that level of adaptation and empowering and engaging your millennials and your workforce out on the front stage. You don't need to do a ton of those changes to make your organization competitive in your marketplace. And therefore, you will benefit more than your competitors will in the disruptive marketplace. And that's actually not that hard to do, but it requires some courage and some leadership and the willingness to give up. You know, you can't fill a glass with new water if it's full of old water, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is the most important thing people can do is look at what they're going to give up and pour out of their glass Mm -hmm. so that they can add a little bit of the exponential water into their glass.
0: As you were talking, I was actually thinking about that, that it's a matter of letting go of certain old, and you said it really well, it's like you have to create some space for that to happen. You have to be willing to let go of old ways of doing things so that the new ones can come in, which can be if you're someone who's scared or in that scarcity versus abundance mindset, it's very hard, but the consequence of not doing that is worse. So it's have a growth mindset, be willing to shift. And I like that focus on adaptation. And getting out of the way is a big part of that. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, we've talked a long time, <laughs> which is fantastic. Christian, I just appreciate so much the thoughtfulness that you put into everything that you do. I love that you add the historical aspects in, a lot of which I'm very familiar with when you say it. I'm like, oh, yeah, but you bring it into the current conversation. I really appreciate that big perspective. The consciousness of what you're doing now. And I know you're very excited. And as you said, it's iterative. You keep learning and keep experimenting and keep adapting both your own learning and that of your company. So I'm sure we'll be talking in a few more months time about what the next version of this is. But I just want to say thank you. I always learn a lot from our conversation. And I know for our listeners to be exposed to an exponential organization again, who's so thoughtful and aware of what they're doing, starting with values that that's really educational and also inspirational. So I've really appreciated this conversation.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time. And I hope people got some insights and inspiration to take some of these concepts and apply them.
0: I'm certainly will. All right, so thank you everyone for listening. If you have any questions or comments or anything else you want to hear about from Christian, please let us know at questions@strategiccoach.com. And as always, here's to your team success.